Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Weissman, the editor of Modern Retail, and I'm joined with GT Dave, the founder of GT Living Food. Um, how's it going, GT? I'm excited to talk about all things kombucha with you. I'm doing well, Kale. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So for those who don't know, and I imagine a lot of people will know about your company because I have seen uh, your bottles in stores for years, but just what's, you know, what is GT Living Food? How did it all start? Uh, well, it all started in 1995 when I experienced and brewed my first batch of kombucha, which I was making in my parents' kitchen in Los Angeles. And it was something that kind of fell into my lap. It was something that my parents had been making and drinking, and I quickly fell in love with. It actually helped my mom with her breast cancer, which, which was really the catalyst or the impetus for me wanting to share it with the world. So just being at the tender age of 15, I really didn't have any business experience. So it genuinely was this labor of love that I, I truly wanted to put out there in the world. And fortunately, it went pretty well. And 25 years later, here I am today. That's awesome. So can you talk, I, I, one of the things I really want to get into with you is about how the dynamics of the CPG business have changed over time, especially this year's an especially interesting year. I imagine you, you have some insights into that, but just beginning in the, the late nineties, did you have a general strategy for how you were going to get distribution sort of, how did you go about initially growing the company until it sort of reached fever pitch and just sort of went from there? Yeah. I'd like to say that I went about the marketing of my products in a very unconventional way because I was so young at the time and because I really was leading from my heart. My primary goal was really to just make the best product possible in, what, in a way that I believed would, would truly change people's lives for the better. And I really didn't have um, exceptionally high financial or business goals, um, which is, I think, pretty unusual for an <laughs> entrepreneur. <laughs> um, so I really just wanted to make a great product and put it out there for whomever and whoever could enjoy it. And so that's what I did. And I really didn't think about marketing. My marketing is really just kind of, as I said, leading from the heart and making sure people understood what I was trying to share. Absolutely. Did you, I mean, can you talk a little about you, how did you iterate either the packaging or the product as, as you got more national distribution? Was it, or was it just sort of, it worked, it hit, hit the right chord and you were able to grow from that? Yeah, it was interesting because we went national in 2005 and coincidentally about a year and maybe a year and a half before we went national, we, I had already made my own independent decision to change the packaging and update it. And the reason for that is as I was spending a lot more time in the retail environment, I was interacting with consumers through, a, through you know, demoing, which I think is one of the most effective ways of understanding who your consumer is as well as reaching them. And what I realized during those, the course of those conversations is that the product on the inside of the bottle didn't match the packaging. And so I wanted to make sure that I fixed that. And so what I did is I spent about a year of this kind of meditative, very analytical and uh, almost studious journey of making sure that the next packaging design that I utilize truly did express the heart and soul of the product on the inside. And, and that's what I did. And fortunately, we did it preemptively. It was before we experienced huh. our national distribution. So it was, it was kind of great timing because by the time we were now available in all states, we had this wonderful new look that I think really connected with a lot of consumers. What Can you give a little some examples of sort of what, what you needed to highlight in order to sort of bring that interior out? Absolutely. And so in order to do that, I'll explain what the packaging looked like before. So to put it simply, it looked like a Snapple, right? It's very, <laughs> very poppy, very bright colors, very um, 
fruit graphic heavy, which I think suggested to the consumer that this was a little bit more of a recreational drink, right? It was like a, uh, a, a fruit juice or some kind of like, you know, so, a Snapple or Sobe alternative, because by the way, those were the primary market, uh, primary beverages mm-hmm. that were in the market at the time. And so what I wanted to make sure is explicitly say, we are not that. And so what I did is I utilized and, and kind of um, pulled from my own personal experience, which was a lot of um, travels to the eastern part of the world, namely India. So I started to leverage a lot of my background, um, a belief in spirituality and eastern um, symbolism and all of that, which really gave birth to what we call our lotus architecture. And that's our packaging that we've more or less used up until present day. It has, you know, again, a little bit of this eastern vibe, quasi-Moroccan, a lot of symbolism, the lotus flower, which to many is symbolic of transformation and transcend and transcending. So in my mind, and, and, you know, this was kind of confirmed after interacting with consumers is that it really started to speak the right language to people. And of course your packaging really is your number one form of advertising. That's so, so I feel like, especially now, like in the last year or two, there's been a a real influx of very premium brands that their packaging matches that and has that. And I feel like doing that in, you know, the early 2000s was sort of ahead of its time in terms of thinking about, you know, not just being, trying to be a a replicate of, you know, the Sobe or the Snapples or the Cokes. Uh, Was it just the the imagery or were you trying to sort of say something that was, that you were a drink that was very different than everything else? It was actually both. So again, in my mind, the, the most perfect marriage is when you marry a visual expression with a verbal expression. And so a visual expression is colors, imagery, graphics, which um, mm-hmm. for our packaging is this really nice contrast of this kind of contemporary design of a strong pops of white, but also the strong pops of color. And then the symbolism comes through the unique um, label design, the die cut, which is the shape of the label, the lotus flower, which obviously has a lot of symbolism. So when you look it up, it actually has this, um, you know, kind of history and meaning behind it. And then to kind of layer on top of that, a verbal expression. So what we did, and we continue to do this, is our labels are incredibly copy heavy. And what Mm -hmm. we do and what I take pride in is making sure that every label almost feels like you're receiving a personal letter from me. And And that's by design because the products we make are incredibly personal. They're in many ways an expression of who I am as a human being. And so I want to make sure that that's conveyed all the way down to when the bottle reaches the consumer's hands. And so that's kind of our approach that we've utilized for the last 15 years. Wow. Would you say back then, was that also how you got across sort of the education component for people who didn't know what kombucha was? Yes, absolutely. I mean, again, kombucha is such a dynamic product that even the label really can't hold all the information. But (laughs) if you, again, if you pick your battles properly and you make sure that your communication and messaging is super precise, you can kind of hit all the specific points that you need to hit to pique the curiosity and interest of the consumer. And then they start to do their own research. They'll rather start talking about it to people. They even start talking about it with the people who work in the grocery stores that they shop at, or better yet, they'll go online and they'll discover on their own what kombucha and probiotics and everything that's in kombucha has to offer them. Mm-hmm. Have you had to, as you know, kombucha has become more mainstream, more people are talking about gut health and probiotics. Have you sort of changed how you've positioned the product because it, you didn't have to do as much education or sort of how have you evolved as it, more people knew exactly what it was that you were making? Yeah, that's a great question because 
as when I started, there really was no understanding of the word probiotic. Um, I think the word that was most understood at the time was antibiotic, which interesting enough is <laughs> the complete opposite. So there yeah. definitely was this, not only this learning curve, but this explicit effort to educate people on what probiotics are. Now, fortunately today, that hurdle or barrier is no longer there to the degree that it used to be. So I think people now have a general understanding of probiotics, but unfortunately, and this is common in our marketplace, that now you have to clarify that not all probiotics are the same. I mean, of course, you have probiotics that are found in fermented foods, such as kombucha and water kefir and kimchi and things of that nature. And then you have a little bit more lab-grown probiotics, which tend to come in pill form or they're additives into products themselves. And I'm not here to say one is better or worse than the other, but they certainly are all different. And they, in many ways, actually complement each other. Mm -hmm. So we, we kind of go out of our way to educate our fans and consumers that our kombucha we grow instead of manufacture. And that means we grow our probiotics. They are crafted by nature, not man. And there's a lot of benefits to that because like we know a lot about food that comes from nature is that it really resonates with our bodies. It's very gentle. It's very holistic. It even has an adaptogenic quality, which means it kind of works with your body to find what's not working or what needs improvement. And that in my mind is the definition of holistic health. And so kombucha is very much that. And so that's kind of our role to help educate our fans of like, all right, there's more than meets the eye and don't just blindly buy any product that says probiotic, do a little bit more research. Mm -hmm. Given that, you know, you mentioned all of these different products that are assigned with probiotic, you know, kimchi, miso, et cetera. Like, have you, as, as you've grown the company, have you thought about going into those other areas or are you just solely beverage in the probiotic space? Um, well, I mean, we actually have. I mean, we have a variety of products in our portfolio now that um, continue to further this conversation of uh, cultivated foods, namely fermented foods. So, mm -hmm. yes, we, we do consider ourselves more of a beverage company than anything else, but it's no mistake that the word food is in our company's name. So GTC Living Foods really stands for anything that nourishes in, in whatever shape or form it may be. So, of course, kombucha is a big part of that, but then we also have our water kefir called aqua kefir, which is kind of like a, a young sister to kombucha. It originated in Mexico. It's been around for over 200 years, and it has a different probiotic profile than kombucha, but yet it's made very similar. It's naturally fermented. It's grown. It's not manufactured. And then we, of course, have our cocoa yo, which I think definitely um, fits the description of a food. It's a fermented raw coconut yogurt that's made with really only three ingredients, young raw coconut meat, raw young coconut water, and then probiotics. And so those are our ways of basically saying there's so many different ways to get nutrition. And by the way, it's never just one way. It's kind of all of the above because our digestive systems are so incredibly dynamic with all these different beneficial microorganisms. You can never say that you're just getting it from one place. So you really want to get it from multiple sources. How have you gone about with those new other products? Because those have less of a, a name recognition than, say, kombucha does now with like kefir and uh, and all those other. Do you is, have you had the same sort of you know incline of of getting consumers to understand exactly what it is that they're buying, or has it been easier because they they know GT Living Food? 
You know, it's interesting. It's a combination of easy yet difficult. It's easy because we certainly are very grateful to have a um, great reputation in the marketplace with our distributors and retailers, and of course, most importantly, our, our, our beloved fans and consumers. So getting into the market's not difficult, but because we take pride in being pioneers in these kind of unchartered channels or unchartered categories, is that it's sometimes still a challenge for us to communicate and educate that water kefir is not a kombucha or that cocoa mm-hmm. yo is not a chobani, right? So there's still that type of education that's involved. It's not the same as it was 25 years ago when, again, the world was made up of Snapple and Sovi, but um, it's mm-hmm. still an education process. And again, I think the challenge that brands like mine face is that when you're known for something so specific, right, we're the category leader and creator for kombucha, the consumer sometimes thinks that everything we make is a kombucha. And mm-hmm. we certainly love our kombucha products and there are crown jewels, if you will. But we definitely feel that there's so many other products that the world needs. And so we feel that's our opportunity and, and our path. Is, is it also an education for uh, your, your wholesale partners too? Are they ever skeptical about, you know, just selling one of your non-kombucha products? Or has there, has there been a, you know, what has the interplay with that been? Yeah, so what's interesting in the retail world is that, again, uh, when you're an established brand and you've experienced some incredible success that we've been blessed to have, that is kind of the bar. And so mm-hmm. if, if you're selling, making it up um, 20 bottles a week in a store, and that's like your average v- velocity or volume, anything that sells below that is considered a failure. Now, if we were a brand new, fresh company that had no track record, no reputation, and we were just trying to break into the marketplace with this new innovative product, that would be our standard. And so a lot of stores and distributors are a lot more patient with those kind of unknown brands and unknown products because they understand that it takes a while for people to get it. But with us, they almost expect people to get it right away. And so we find ourselves more often Mm -hmm. than not not only saying to our retailers, but even saying to ourselves. I mean, I was having this conversation with my team as recent as a, a, a two weeks ago saying, listen, we, we need to modify our definition of success. You can't expect, because mm. again, we see our products almost like human beings. You can't expect a product that's now in graduate school to, to you know, and compare that to an infant. There's so many, they're so different in their life cycle that you really need to understand that it took 25 years for us to get where we're at with kombucha and I'm not going to say it's going to tw- take 25 years to get that as far as we need to with aqua kefir or coco yo, but it, it's going to take some time. Do you? I mean, do you? Tr- do you say that specifically to to the retailers, or is it just sort of test and learn, and you you and your team know? It's both. I mean, we we have to say it so the retailer understands that we're also aware of it <laughs> because I think a lot yeah. of times retailers see your success and they think that okay, anything that you put on the shelf is immediately going to take off, and there's exceptions where that truly does happen. But when you're dealing with a brand new product line of something that really has a fresh story, you have to kind of test and verify. You have to provide proof of concept. So we tell our fans and our our retailers that please be patient. Absolutely. I'd be interested just to hear a little bit sort of 
have the dynamics just in terms of your sales or how you've gone about things shifted now with stay at home measures? I feel like there are a lot of brands I know specifically that relied a lot on national distribution that, you know, the dynamics completely shifted. How, how did, what did you guys observe? I know that you're in a lot of grocery stores, so it's not like they closed, but what, you know, where did the demand lie and how did you sort of adapt to that? Yeah. To your point, I don't think any brand has been invincible to COVID. Even brands that are able to sell through e-com have seen certain areas of their channels completely wiped out by COVID. And so we're certainly no exception. Now, fortunately, as you just stated, we are well positioned with our distribution and the channels we sell in that we didn't see any significant um, long-term interruption. But having said that, it definitely was a wild ride. Um, I think to put it simply, Mm -hmm. it was an up and then a down, and then a slow climb back up. And, you know, there's many reasons for that. I think one is just the the behavior of the consumer dramatically changed within March and April of this year, where people were panic buying, they were going to the stores less frequently and buying different kinds of foods and different packaging. There was a time where anything that was considered single serve, so like our 16-ounce bottle, was basically dead. It was (laughs) multi-serve, it was like the family size, the bulk packaging, that you were seeing consumers buy because they're like, all right, well, if I'm, if this is my one trip to the grocery store this week or worse yet this month, I'm going to buy things that I can consume on multiple occasions for myself or better yet for my family. And then of course, and this is no secret because there was this remarkable shift to making food at home. You started to see certain foods like baked goods and even milk and eggs really start to skyrocket as Kids are now staying at home and parents are trying to find ways to stay busy and stay productive. And so there there was early on, there was this time where we were like, wow, not only are we having difficulty getting to the store, but we're seeing this dramatic shift in consumption and purchasing behavior that we need to make sure that we're not forgotten about or somehow we don't turn into like a dinosaur during these (laughs) these unusual times. So how did you do that? What, what, what was it, you know, did you focus more on your, 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 your bigger packaging? Did you, did you try to move? I know that you, like I, I was on your website and you can buy online. Did you put a lot of emphasis on buying online so people get delivered to their homes? How did you sort of navigate that? Yeah. I mean, it was a 360 degree approach to be candid. Um, so first of all, what did it start off with is that the, the most important thing is that when COVID started to hit, obviously the world and the people within it started to freak out. And so you need to be, Mm -hmm. in in my opinion, incredibly empathetic and compassionate to that sentiment and that feeling. And so I don't think anybody that's going through any kind of stress wants to be sold to. So we had to be very careful that we weren't taking advantage of the situation. However, we did want to delicately and carefully shine a bright light on that our products stand do and always have stood for health and Mm -hmm. wellness and most importantly, immunity and a strong body that helps you remain resilient against illnesses or diseases. So we wanted to make sure that we reminded people of why we exist, because I think that was important for our existing consumers and for people now that were spending more attention than ever before on the importance of their health. So that was something that we had to um, kind of slightly pivot to, to make sure that we weren't just doing the same old, same old, um, and that we were paying attention to what was going on. So that was number mm-hmm. one. And then number two is making sure that we had constant conversations with our distributor and retail partners, letting them know that, hey, we are hearing feedback from our consumers that they can't get this product, whether it's they go to the stores and it's not stocked or what have you. So making sure everybody 
downstream understood the importance of the availability of our products. And then lastly, and this of course was something that we've been wanting to do all along, but I think COVID certainly accelerated it, was beefing up our presence in the e-com world, or at least the direct-to-consumer world. And so the best way to do that, of course, was to do it in our own backyard, which is here in Los Angeles. So we started to develop this um, direct-to-consumer program where you can go on our website, order it, and within, I think, 48 hours or less, a case will arrive at your front door. And it was a nice way for us to kind of pilot that approach and then slowly learn how we're going to do that on a greater scale. How did that, how were the results of that? They were incredible. I mean, again, our fans love our products and that's something we're incredibly grateful for. And one of the most unique things that we believe that our products do that a lot of products of our kind don't is that not only do our fans, you know, appreciate the, the way that our products make them feel, but our products in many ways are part of people's daily lifestyle. And so we need to make sure that they have access to this because they consume it on a regular basis. And so I think this kind of quasi-subscription approach is something that our fans have been waiting for for a, for a very long time, and COVID kind of gave us that reason to explore it. Interesting. Do you, do you have any, like, how do you want that to be a, like, you know, a third of your, like, do you have any projections or I guess targets for wh- what you want DTC to be as part of your business? Do you want that to grow to be a third of it with wholesale or what are your sort of, how do you approach success when it comes to that sort of one-to-one with the consumer sales model? Yeah. I mean, again, this goes back to kind of how I think is I don't measure my success off of percentages of growth or dollar sales. To me, it's making sure that we make the best product possible. And that translates all the way down to the consumer's experience and interaction with the products we make. So to me, the definition of success is that we are reaching as many people as we can in a D2C um, interaction. And that every time, if, if um, or at least most of the time, that our product, when it's received by the consumer, is as perfect as it was when they purchased it straight out of the refrigerator at their local grocery store. So that's really right now my standard is that I will never do anything that compromises the integrity of our products, even to you know chase a sale as, as interesting as an e-com one. I want to make sure that our products are always perfect. And again, if we can achieve that in, in a D2C environment, then I will be happy. How would you, it seems like now is specifically an exciting time to be a DTC or to be a drink brand that, that has a DTC business. I feel like there are a lot of startups and, you know, slowly, you know, fast growing companies that, that aren't, that, you know, aren't trying to be just, you know, what we think of as beverages, you know, they're, they're either, you know, have health benefits or they have less sugar or they're doing interesting flavors that you haven't seen in mass markets before. Do you, do you think that, do you see these as competitors? Do you see this meaning that there's going to be more people who would be interested in, in trying drinks like kombucha sort of how, how would you say the sort of, you know, CPG drink market has changed, especially now since there seem to be so many new startups in, in the space? Well, I think it's going to be very interesting to witness. Um, I, I can't say that I have any one specific emotion or expectation towards <laughs> it. I mean, I do think it, there's something very beautiful about the fact that consumers have or will have potentially more access to these products because there are certain people that live in a region that they don't have a health food store or they don't have a grocery store that offers these types of products. So I think in that respect, a direct-to-consumer or e-com play is remarkable and is great for everyone. But playing devil's advocate, the one thing that I don't want to lose sight on, it's something that I'm personally paying attention to, is there's something to be said about, again, as we all know, COVID has taught us this, about physical interaction. 
And I'm not just mm -hmm. saying the physical interaction that sometimes we're potentially missing by not being able to physically go into a store and talk to the, you know, the people who work there or better yet, people who shop there. It's also going to the store and seeing the refrigerator display or whatever shelf you're looking at. Because a lot of times, most times when you look at a store shelf, you can kind of almost um, conclude or understand what is a the better selling product or what's the product that, product that might be right for you based on how it's merchandised and its presence on the shelf. When you go to an Amazon or a website, you kind of lose that connective tissue and it almost becomes that you're, you're going off of just the ad of the brand or consumer feedback. Now, consumer feedback, unfortunately, can be a lot of times just based on taste. And we all know mm -hmm. that some of the healthiest products out there don't taste like candy. And there's reasons for that. So it's this delicate balance of letting this new profile of the consumer understand that there's more than meets the eye and certainly more than just a double click on that product image on that website for them to understand truly what their relationship will be with this product and what their expectations and ultimate results will be after consuming it. That's you know interesting. You say that one of the things that we just covered on on our site, I think today maybe, is the, the idea that uh, or that a lot of sort of startup brands are f using are using e-commerce as a way to sort of forego like the trade show model where, you know, they're getting the attention of national distribution from Whole Foods because they can point to their online sales and then get into those physical stores. Are you, do you think that that, do you see that, that sort of acceleration happening where these, these brands are sort of growing because they were able to get people to try it through their online sales, but then they're going to be in these physical stores. And does that ask, do you think that that will mean more competition for shelf space for you? Um, not necessarily, because the, the one other thing that I think is an important detail is in the e-com space, it's rare that you see refrigerated products that have a short shelf life mm -hmm. re really becoming a replacement for the brick and mortar. So I'm not saying that there's no opportunity, mm -hmm. and I'm not saying that it's a, a modest opportunity. I definitely think there's a lot of upside. Having said that, again, you're actually seeing this trend in our space, the kombucha category that is, as well as adjacent categories, that a lot of companies are modifying their recipes or their product packaging or just their ingredients to allow their products to be shelf stable, not re require refrigeration, um, being easier to ship. That's why you're seeing, I think, this proliferation of canned beverages, mm -hmm. um, which in my mind, to be honest, are somewhat inferior to that of glass because a lot of people don't know that canned canned packaging is actually coated with plastic. So, you know, it's that kind of conversation that I think we're going to have to make sure that everybody totally understands. But back to your question, I don't, I'm, I'm not super concerned that this will translate into a lot of products showing up on shelf because if they do end up showing up on shelf, nine out of 10 times, they're going to be in the dry beverage section, which is the unrefrigerated, mm -hmm. the old, I don't want to say Coke and Pepsi aisle, but again, call it that soda the sparkling water aisle where there's just a lot of things sitting on the shelf where products like mine kind of exist exclusively in the refrigerator. Mm -hmm. So I, I think I read it, it was in an, an Inc. magazine profile of you that uh, that you had a few years ago was written 60% of the of the market share of kombucha. Is that still around where you're at or sort of how, how has the competitive landscape changed? Well, 
so to I think answer your first question, so our, our, I don't pay too close attention to our market share because I think it's like watching stocks every day. Like it goes up <laughs> and it goes down. <laughs> I think yeah. again, uh, brands and brand owners should be really driven by the mission that they're on and what they're trying to say and how their product supports that mission. So that's kind of how I, I live my daily life. Um, but I, but again, I think back to what the second half of your question is, I mean, you're seeing in the category that, um, there are this, this kind of gold rush where brands are rather trying to rush to the, the top, which ironically can be the rush to the bottom because they're giving away so much of their products for free that they're almost mm. like running out of money. Um, or they're modifying their the way they make their products to appeal to a more mainstream consumer, which I believe is a slippery slope. Because if you're mm-hmm. trying to take your kombucha or whatever product you're making, to be honest, and you're trying to emulate that of a a juice or a soda or something like that, you're, you're really kind of reducing your standards. And I've always lived my life and certainly run my company with this elevated standard and this elevated consciousness of I want to invite people to upgrade the way they eat and the way they consume. And so that may involve a time where I can't appeal to a consumer because maybe my product is too dynamic or too complex for them. But in my mind, that is fine. Because I'm not going to dumb down my product and compromise its qualities to make a sale. Because I think that's a very mm-hmm. short-sighted decision. And I think, unfortunately, right now, especially because of COVID, because you're seeing a lot of brands saying, oh, my God, what do I have to do to stay in business? And, you know, a lot of companies and brands are desperate. And so sometimes desperate times comes for desperate decisions, which, again, can be problematic for the long term. You mentioned pricing. Uh, what's your general philosophy when it comes to pricing? Because I think that that's like, it seems like there are two different camps. The one that you mentioned where, you know, they're trying to just sort of get, you know, get there to scale, get as many people to buy. And so their margins are, I'm sure, terrible. And then there are also, you know, more premium products that realize that they can sell it for a little bit higher of a price point, And that's sort of part of the the competitive advantage. So how, like, what do you, do you, do you, what do you sort of see in terms of the pricing and how do you approach it for, for your products? Absolutely. So, for, I mean, first of all, I know it's a little cliche to say, but I believe in the statement, you get what you pay for, right? Which means if you're buying something for 99 cents, there's probably a reason for that versus the other um, alternative, which is maybe three or $4, right? So, but I do believe that it's important to, um, build trial and get and a, a kind of appeal to early adopters. And a lot of times you have to lower the barrier to entry by doing some kind of really impressive sale or even like a buy one, get one. Now, having said that, I don't think that should be the only trick in your bag, because if that's the only thing that you do and you're always heavily discounting your product or worse, giving it away, you start to signal to the consumer that, hey, this isn't something that's that special. I mean, it's, there's no mistake, and this is a weird analogy, there's a reason we don't have Christmas every week, right? Because <laughs> it wouldn't be a special holiday. And I believe premium products like the ones we make, yes, it's important to make sure they're accessible, which is, by the way, one of the reasons why I haven't raised the price of my products in over 25 years. But having said that, that's also why I don't give away my products. I mean, I, I, I sometimes feel like I'm dying a slow death or my heart breaks when I see a brand selling their stuff for like two for three dollars, mm-hmm. right? Or two for two dollars. I mean, at some point, I sometimes companies, and not just in the kombucha space, I think this is something across all categories where they start to fall into, whether they know it or not, that kind of Pepsi and Coke price war. Mm-hmm. And we all yeah. know how that movie ends. And I certainly don't want to be part of that sequel. 
Absolutely. So wh- do you have any new new food areas that you're looking into uh, beyond the ones that you've already launched in? Are there, what, are, what, what are you sort of looking towards down the line? Well, you know, it's interesting is I would say from um, 2018 to 2019, myself as well as my company has been very prolific with innovation. So we launched mm-hmm. Alive, which is our adaptogenic um, mushroom tea, which utilizes reishi, chaga, and turkey tail to boost your immune system and fight free radicals with antioxidants. And then we have our water kefir, which I said is a sister to kombucha. We have cocoyo, which is the raw coconut yogurt. And then more recently, we have um, our probiotic shots. So we have given birth to a lot of little children <laughs> in the last year or so. And so a lot. to be honest, yeah, a lot. And so just like, again, using that silly analogy of giving birth is you need to make sure that now you've brought these um, products into the world and they now are living their own life. And you really want to make sure that you nurture them so they can grow up in a nice, slow and steady way to be something that you can be proud of. So right now we're really kind of in that nurturing stage. We're making sure that these products are everything and anything we want them to be and making sure that the consumer and the retailer and everybody else downstream appreciates and understands in that way. And again, it's, it's a, a slow and steady kind of path. And so that's what we're on this year is we're kind of planting all these seeds. We've planted all these seeds and now we're watching them start to sprout. Absolutely. All right. Well, GT Dave, this has been a really great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. That's my pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. Our producer is Pierre Bienname, who also produced our theme music. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week. Thank you.